I'm going to preach from way back here today. Thank you. I needed someone stronger than me to come up here and help me. Let's give it a... And nobody else in the whole church would do this except you. Everybody give it up for Brant Barron. Boom. There it is. Thank you, my brother. It's good to have you back in the front row. Last week I felt bad for you because we had, we had baptisms. We had the other kids and stuff in here. So you're displaced for a week. But... Uh, but I'm glad you're here to serve me today. Uh, we uh, we uh, we're about to embark on a on a pretty deep theological journey today. So today, I hope you have your thinking caps on. Today is going to be a lot more theological than it is practical. Um, so if that's your thing, then that's your thing, and you're excited about today. Uh, if it's not your thing, I invite you to come back next week, because next week is going to be a lot more practical than theological, because we're going to be talking about how do we get control of this like, little thing in our mouth called our tongues that James says is set on fire itself by hell. Whoa, that's pretty intense. So we're going to get into that, that next week, um, but today is going to be a lot more theological, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask for you to put your thinking caps on, because this is what we got to deal with. Look at this. This is what James says. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And, James, or, and, and Paul says the Romans, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And we're like, okay, justified by what? Okay. James, Paul, Get your act together here. We're a little confused by what you're saying, right? Our text is a difficult passage to wrap our minds around, and so we're going to be spending a lot of time in the text together, walking through it verse by verse, phrase by phrase sometimes, trying to figure out what James intended by this phrase. And this is just a reminder about what we believe about this book as we get into the theological weeds and the discussion today. Because we need to remind ourselves this, we know that every word in this book, and especially in this text, is God-breathed. And so therefore, what is in this book is exactly what God wants to be in here. And the way that he got his message in here is by using the personalities of human authors who are writing to specific people in specific situations that needed specific contextualized messages. So sometimes... What looks like an opposing message on the surface, once you actually press down into them after doing some heavy hermeneutical lifting, you're going to see that there's no contradiction in these statements. But on the surface of things, it looks like we got a major problem in the New Testament. There's a major problem with these two passages if you just read them at a surface level. So we're going to have to press down deep into them to see how do we reconcile these apparent contradictions on the surface. We need to ask, who are the hearers? What circumstances did they find themselves in? How would the original hearers understand what James was saying given their current circumstances? How did they hear it? What was the author intending to say? Not so much what did he say, but what did he mean by the words that he chose? So we have... We have some heavy lifting to do here today, so just be ready for it. And with that in mind, I want to pray with you all um, what we just sang about. We just sang about asking God to speak, and we need to ask him once again to do that now as we open up our minds to this word today, Uh, because it's a severely sobering subject that we're going to talk about. So let's pray. 
Lord, we do submit ourselves to your word. We know that every word in this text is uh, put there by design, on purpose, by your Holy Spirit. And um, I pray that we would understand what is going on when we read these things that on a surface level are plain as day contradictions, or at least saying two different things. And so God, help us to press down into these passages, primarily in James, because that's where we're at today. And I pray that you would open up our minds to understand all these wonderful things that are in here for us. And may you add your blessing to those of us who read and hear and then do um, what this text is saying. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to get into the text in a moment, but this is a severely sobering subject because it deals with how is a person justified before a holy God? <laughs> there's, no bigger, there's no bigger question that needs to be answered by us. What I mean by this is how is one, how is a person made righteous or considered righteous before God, a God who is completely holy and completely unique and expects perfection, how can we present ourselves before him? How are we justified, made righteous in his eyes? Now when I say that, I know this, I'm making a huge assumption. And the huge assumption that I'm making is this, I am assuming that we all agree that we're guilty before him. Okay? Now, that is, that's a message that is contrary to the culture and the world that we live in, right? The culture claims something very different. The culture would say, you know, mankind is kind of just inherently good. And in fact, everybody has this little spark of divinity in them. And all you have to really do is fan that flame a little bit and bring it out and you'll produce good deeds. You'll be a pretty good person. You won't really be that bad. And that's just not what the Bible claims. That's not what the biblical authors teach, what the Bible teaches is that we all fall short. We can appear before a holy God. We all fall short. We all miss the mark. And not only that, we all overstep boundaries, and a lot of times on purpose. And if you actually take an honest look at yourself, I think we can all agree, and I won't, I won't take the time to unpack that, but I think we can all agree with that, that there's, that, that assessment of the biblical authors is true, is we, we carry with us some sense of guilt. We've done wrong, Okay? So, for those of us that have done wrong, how do you get into good standing with the holy God? There's not, a, there's not a more important question that must be answered for you that is listening and for me that's preaching, for you that's listening online. We have to be able to answer this question and have a right answer for it. Do we work for it and earn it? Or do we receive it as a gift of God's grace through faith on a surface level our passage can seem to indicate that our work triggers God's grace in some way. But when we read in Paul in Romans, we see that it's faith that triggers God's grace. So which is it, right? We have an issue that we need to get to the bottom of. And so I want to get into the content of the passage, and it's really broken down into two segments. So we're going to take them one at a time. Let's look at James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Follow along on the screen or follow along in your Bibles and mark this up because this is really kind of an introduction to the content. And James is going to make an initial conclusion based off of an illustration. So look what James says. He starts off with a question. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So look at verse 14. Verse 14 is an initial rhetorical question with the assumed answer, no. James is assuming that we would hear that question and be like, no, that's, that's not good. It's not good at all. He's assuming that his readers and us reading the text today would say, no, it isn't any good. There's no good in that if you have, if you have faith but you have no works, right? Or has faith but, but does not have any works. And so once again, he's going to say, look, that's not any good. But then James is going to take it one step further and ask, can that faith, that type of faith, save that person And once again, he's going to assume that we answer the question with a negative. No, no, it can't. That type of faith can't save anybody. That type of faith can't save a person, i.e., make that sinful person be or even appear to be righteous in God's eyes. And James is going to push down into it a little bit deeper. He's going to say, look, just in case you can't answer that question correctly, James is going to try to convince you with this absurd hypothetical situation. So if you don't get the rhetorical question, now he's going to bring up a hypothetical situation in verses 15 through 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and filled Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Okay? If you go up to somebody that's cold and hungry, and you say, hey, you know what? I've noticed you. I know what you need. What you need is some food, and you need to go get yourself warmed up. And then you kind of pat them on the back and you send them on the way. But you do nothing to help them. What good is that? Can you answer that for me? Any good? No, it's not, right? No, they knew their need. They, were, they came to you with a growling tummy, right? Or they were shivering. They knew what they needed. They didn't need your advice. They didn't need your hot take on their situation. What they needed was something of your actions, Your advice wasn't helpful to them at all. What they needed was your actions. And James ends this initial segment by asking this, or saying this, stating this, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Dead. Whoa. So as we get into this, James has this initial conclusion based off of an illustration and a hypothetical situation, and he says, faith that doesn't manifest itself in actions is dead. This quote-unquote type of faith is not only no good, but he says it's dead, If it's not expressed, faith is not expressed by our actions, it proves to be non-living, a non-productive type of faith. It is a dead faith, meaning that it's not effective for that which was intended to be and do for you. So there is a type of faith that's a dead faith. 
And we're like, okay, this isn't controversial. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So far, so good, right? Nothing controversial. Just, just end the message there, right? James, James made a claim. He did the good job of illustrating it. He makes sense of it. It makes sense to us. So let's just forget about verses 18 through 24. But the problem is, is that James doesn't stop in verse 17, right? He continues on, and this is where we get the apparent friction that occurs on a surface level. Because section 1, verses 14 through 17, is a hypothetical situation. This section, verses 18 through 26, is a hypothetical conversation, but illustrated in reality by observing the life of the patriarch Abraham and the prostitute Rahab. And James is going to substantiate his claim by winning an argument with an imaginary foolish friend. All right? So side note, if you ever want to engage in a theological fiery conversation with an imaginary friend, just make sure you're more smarter than they are, right? More smarter, right? Right? Make sure they're foolish, right? So you can win the argument, because that's what James does for us here. So I guess that's one point of application for today that's very theologically uh, centered. He's going to introduce us to his foolish imaginary friend, and then he's going to argue with him in front of us, and then we can act like the fly in the wall in the room, observing everything that's being said, and he does this so that we can come to our own conclusion based on the facts that are stated. So we're going to work through this. Just We're not even going to read through the whole thing. We're just going to take it line by line so you can kind of see it. I think it's important for us to, to dissect it in that way. What does faith that justifies us before a holy God look like? So let's slowly work through this, starting in verse 18. So he has this foolish friend that he introduces to us. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So James's imaginary friend says, you have faith, I have works. And then James wants to pull his hair out in frustration in front of us because his imaginary friend, foolish may he, though he may be, has just made a distinction between faith and works that is incompatible with the way that James is thinking about it. In James's mind, you can't separate faith from works. Faith and works are like two sides of the same coin. And this is actually interesting because you can track and trace this same idea when you crack open the book of Hebrews to chapter 11 specifically. And here's the formula. You'll see it. Look at it sometime later today or later this week. This is the formula to understand faith. It says, by faith, and then there's the name of a person, a, a proper noun. By faith, here is this person, and then that person is followed by an action verb. So by faith, so-and-so did this. So for instance, if we would look in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice. By faith, Noah constructed an ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed God, setting out to live in a new land. And by faith, his wife Sarah conceived a son because what she considered God to be faithful to the promise that he gave her. And eventually, by faith, Abraham 
offered his son, so on and so forth. It's two sides of the same coin. And James says to his friend, you know what, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. What he is assuming is that we realize that what he is asking of us to do is impossible. You can't show something invisible without making it visible. It's impossible. So James says, since you can't show something invisible without making it first visible, I'm going to show you my very real faith, my invisible faith, by my works. My works is actually going to give a form to my faith that you can observe. The way that the wind blows and gives a flag that's formless a form. When the wind is blowing, you can see the shape and the outline and the contours of the flag. In the same way, James says, I'm going to show you the form of my faith. What does my invisible faith look like? By the conduct of my life, my works. And we're like, okay, so far, so good. Nothing super controversial. That kind of makes sense to us, James. Why are you belaboring this? And he takes it a step further in verse 19. He says, well, you believe, his imaginary friend, you believe That God is one. You do well. By the way, even the demons believe that, right? And they shudder. So what James is saying here is like, look, you can give right mental assent to God. You you could give the theological discussion here today instead of me, right? You, you You could know all these things, right? James is saying you can have right mental assent about God, who he is, what he's like. Just like the demons do. But your right mental ascent about God does not make you right with God. It has to be more than just thinking rightly about God. Demons believe right things about God, but demons are condemned. What you know has to trickle down and permeate your emotions, your will, and then your conduct will be affected. Demons probably know way more about God than we do. But they shudder and they're not repentant. So that tells me that not only is there a dead type of faith that we read about in verse 17, but here there's also like this introduction of this demonic type of faith here in verse 19. Demonic type of faith that's practiced by those who know true things about God, but they never obey him. That's the ultimate deception. That is the ultimate deception. We know all this stuff about God, and we assume that we're right with God, but we don't do anything to demonstrate our faith in God, and you think you're good. That is completely demonic. That is the ultimate deception. And so both faith, this, both those types of faith, whether it's a dead faith or this demonic type of faith, are inadequate for justification, right standing in the sight of God. Now, James is going to get really aggressive right here. Now, now, like the temperature in the room is heating up between he and his imaginary friend, all right? He's going to get really aggressive and he's going to go on the attack and he's going to go right for the jugular. He's going to try to kill any type of false faith 
that his imaginary friend or his very real audience that's reading this correspondence might be trusting in. And so this is what he says in verse 20. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person? This is aggressive, right? Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, trusting in these types of faiths, that faith apart from works is useless, Now, once again, he assumes that giving the gravity of what he's talking about, now we would say, yes, yeah, convince me, show me, right? He's he's throwing all these questions for us. He's assuming because of the gravity of what he's talking about that we say, okay, yeah, you got us. Now I want to know, right? Yes. And so now he's going to go right for the jugular. How? By getting to the ancient roots of the Jewish faith. He's going to go talk about Abraham and Rahab, a patriarch and a prostitute. And he's going to bring up one of the most, some of the two most important people, right? He brings up the one who started the whole people group, Abraham, and he's going to bring up one of the people that was able to preserve God's people and get them into the promised land, a prostitute named Rahab. So now the, the ears of the, the, of the audience is like, okay, now you got our attention. We want to listen to what you have to say, James. Okay? He's going to say that, J, that Abraham and Rahab, a patriarch and a prostitute, became righteous in God's eyes by what they did. By their works. Look at what he says in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father? It's probably right to a Jewish audience here. Our father. Was, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And then verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab, the prostitute, by the way, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Justified by works? That's shocking. That is like spit out the contents of your mouth type of verbiage here. This is shaking things up. So here we got this thing where Paul says, justified by faith apart from works, and you got James saying, these people were justified by their works, and now all of a sudden, it seems like we're in a theological cage match, like Royal Rumble style. Is James going toe-to-toe with Paul, or is Paul going toe-to-toe with James because he probably wrote after James? Like, are they in a, in a combat? Are they in a battle here? Leaving us at the mercy of these great theological minds. We don't know how to get right with God. So are they going toe-to-toe with each other? Or are James and Paul tag team partners back-to-back fighting various opponents that are coming at them from all angles in the first century? That's what we need to get to the bottom of. Who are we fighting here? And verses 21 through 23 are the crux of James' argument, and verse 24 is the conclusion. So, 
Once again, we need to spend some time here. I know it's, 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 we're kind of tracking through this and it's, it's heavy lifting, but we got to do this. Let's spend some time dissecting and understanding what James is saying here. Look at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he, he was called a friend of God. Conclusion, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So this is what we need to work through. This is the problem, right? Verses 24 of this chapter, and then Romans chapter 3, verse 28. Once again, I think we can put these on the screen. Look at these. This is, this is what we have to wade through here. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Oh my goodness, let's do some heavy theological lifting. What are the settings of these contradictory verses found in? Who are the hearers? What circumstances do the original audience readers find themselves in? So let's start with James and we'll finish with Paul. All right? So this is what James says. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, we've known this all along since we've been studying the book of James. James 1.1 says that it's written to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. All right? More than likely, James is writing to Jewish people that are receiving this letter from him, and this Jewish audience has been scattered by persecution because they believe in Jesus as the Messiah. All right? These are people who for their entire lives, get this, for their entire lives lived under the requirements of the Mosaic Law. In order to be right with God, they needed to do all the law. And guess what? They failed miserably all the time. And to these people, these Jewish people that now are believing in Jesus the Messiah, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ had come to them. This good news informed them that Christ had accomplished the law on their behalf. And now they're freed from the law's authority. And they're being judged under a different law that we talked about a few weeks ago, which is the law of liberty in verse 12. We talked about you don't have to keep on the Stairmaster anymore, right? The Stairmaster is busted and broken, and, and you get the benefits of Christ's workout on the Stairmaster for you. For some of you are like, I wasn't here that week. Okay, go back and listen to it, right? So these Jewish, these Jewish Christians in the first century begin to struggle with the same thing that Christians in our century struggle with. How should we live in light of the fact that we have Christian liberty? That's what they're struggling with. You mean, you mean, I'm freed from the law? You mean the 613 pharisaical laws are no longer binding on my life? And they start to let their freedom turn into a yoke of slavery. They're tempted to live however they want to live because they've been freed from the shackles of some outdated religious institution. We're free. And so some people in the first century were teaching that this was okay with the Holy God. Just live however you want. No constraints. If you want to choose that way, go that way. Live however you want. We'll affirm your decisions 
on how you live your life. It's your life after all. Don't let us or don't let a holy God get in your way. You know, we're all God's children. He simply loves us. You are the way you are. And so we don't want to get in your way. Let's just affirm everything. Does that sound familiar? James is not going toe-to-toe with Paul. James is going toe-to-toe with what is known as antinomianism. You're like, oh my goodness, right? Let's break that down. It's not as tricky as when when you break it down into three parts. Anti, it means no, easy enough. Namas is the Greek word for law, so put those together. No law. And then ism is a philosophy of life. So when you put all that together, you can start to see a profile of James's opponent that he's fighting against. What he is going to attack is this idea that, you know what, there's no law, there's no system to live by, there's no philosophy that we should live by. And James is going to go toe-to-toe with this and says, if you have that do-whatever-you-want-because-we've-been-freed-by-the-grace-of-Christ mindset, that's a problem. Yes, you have your Christian liberty, but if you live your life with this do whatever you want because you've been given free grace in Christ, that is a problem. This is the mindset that James is trying to correct with this correspondence. So with that in mind, you got to know the context. With that mindset in mind, James says what he says in order to correct it, but we need to see more than just what he says on the surface. We need to know the intentions of why he said it. And we know what he said, but what is he trying to communicate? The bottom line is this. He's going to say a do-whatever-you-want philosophy of life is incongruent for somebody who has been called by the Lord Jesus Christ to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Man, if you missed equipping hour today, like if we could find a time machine, a flux capacitor, DeLorean, you know what that is? Go back in time. You should have went on to it. It was amazing. Where Garrett, you talked about this verse. A do-whatever-you-want philosophy is incompatible to the call of Jesus to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Whether you're following him in the first century or you're following him in any century afterwards, you can't live that way. Following Christ does not look like that at all. But this is what James's audience was buying into. Now, why? Why were they thinking this way? You know, why, why would anybody think that way? Why, would you, why do you think that way? Right? But why, why were the original audience thinking this way? I want you to picture a cosmic chess match for a moment. God versus the devil, all right? God obviously desires that his gospel of grace be heralded by first century Jewish Christians. And so God, in his providence, used persecution to spread that message out around to the nations. And it put the devil and his plans and his dominions in check. Look, the gospel of grace is going out. And these people are willing to suffer for it. The kingdom of darkness is in deep trouble here. And the devil temporarily gets himself out of check with a counter move. How? Because in an attempt to thwart the plans of God, Satan attempts to convince those spreading the gospel of grace message into thinking that, you know, just live however you want to. You've been liberated from the law. God's gracious. He's got you. And as a result, the salt loses its saltiness and the devil stays upright for another move before he's thrown ultimately into the abyss. 
that was his strategy. Let's just get these guys to blend in, right? So think about this. I'm trying to think of an illustration. Let's say someone comes up to you with this phrase and says, you know what, an apple a day keeps the what? The doctor away, all right? And that person doesn't understand it in a general way, but they understand it in a literal way, and so they start eating apples every day, all right? And they think, if I, just, if I just eat another apple, the doctor will be away from me. I'll be, you know, whatever. And then someone comes up to them observing, like, this exorbitant amount of, like, apples being purchased, right, and eaten, and you say, dude, that's, that's not literal, you know. It's just a kind of a proverbial statement, meaning, like, if you eat healthy, you're generally be healthy. And the guy that hears that says, you mean I don't have to eat apples every day? And that guy goes out, and he never eats an apple again. But instead, he substitutes apples for bacon and milkshakes and other processed meats, and the pounds start to add up, and the quality of life starts to decline, and then he has to go see the doctor, right? This is the threat that James's readers were facing. All of their lives are being told by their religious authorities that they had to keep the Mosaic law in order to be justified or made right in the eyes of God. It was up to them. And that message had a somewhat sanctifying effect on them. They were more civil towards one another. They kept up with the ceremonial law. They were people that followed the moral teachings of the Old Testament. So there's more morality being practiced among the people. But then the gospel of grace comes in and the offer of Jesus is so captivating because he shows up and he says things like this. Why don't you come unto me? I'll give you rest. My yoke, it's easy. My burden is light. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Come to me and you'll have rest for your souls. That's a very attractive message to somebody who's been living underneath the requirements of the Mosaic law. And so they take it. They receive the gospel of God's grace and they receive the mercy and they receive the grace of the sacrifice of Jesus and the angels of heaven rejoice but the adversary and the accuser of the brethren rages on and he ponders and he plots and he schemes and he realizes, guess what? It's not checkmate yet. There's still another move that I can make and he tries the hardest way possible to get these new converts to blend into the larger society by living however they want to live. And so now all of a sudden, the liberated from the law Christian takes one too many drinks of alcohol and he blends in. Or he exercises no control over his tongue and he blends in. Or he holds on to bitterness and he turns a cold shoulder to his or her spouse and they blend in. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is abused and they end up trampling on the blood of Jesus underneath their feet. And that's what James is very, very concerned about. James was concerned that those who had professed faith in Christ and yet lived however they want to, those lives would not justify or validate such a profession. So listen to this. This is really important. James is not saying that the conduct of your life should match what you believe. He is saying that the conduct of your life demonstrates what you believe. Oh, that's vastly different. Not, not your life should match what you believe. Your life tells everybody else what you actually believe. So now that we've done some groundwork, let's see what James says, okay? Verse 21. We're getting close to the end. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? James is assuming that we will all say yes. 
But we must take notice of a few important words that he uses in the next verse in order to understand what he means by that word justified. So look at verse 22. You see, something that you can observe, you see that faith, an invisible substance, was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. There's two words that we have to take notice of and examine. The first word is sunergeo. You see it here, verse 22. You see that his faith was active along with sunergeo, his works. Now, you hear that word, and you're like, that kind of sounds like the word synergistic or synergy. And you're like, yeah, good for you. It means to work together. There's this whole new fitness trend that's been around for a little while now called synergistic workouts. Have you ever done one of those? They're hard, right? Because you could stand up here and, like, do bicep curls, right, and get a good workout. But if you stand up here and do bicep curls and, like, try to balance on one leg, all of a sudden, like, you interact, all your muscle systems, your core is engaged because, like, weight's flying everywhere, and you get a better workout. All your core muscles are holding you together and holding you upright. And synergistically, your body is working together and you get a better workout. You get more bang for your buck. And that's what James is saying. Faith working together synergistically with your works. They're not separate like his imaginary friend was claiming in verse 18. Faith and works are, are synergistically connected together. And now the second word is this, is teleao which means to mature, to complete, right? Verse 22, you see that his faith was active along with his works and his faith was completed teleao by his works. It means to bring something to his desired end, to prove, to assure the genuineness of something, to bring an activity to a successful finish. Now I was thinking about this today or this week. It's almost the inevitable result of a process. So imagine with me, Imagine with me, you're, you're watching a really important football game, and it's the fourth quarter, and Patrick Mahomes has the ball in his hand and a sprain in his ankle. And even though the odds are against him, and his best receivers are on the sideline and injured, and the receivers that are on the field are ineffective and well-covered, and he's being flushed out of the pocket by an angry linebacker who will hit him even if he steps out of bounds, right? He will do whatever it takes to get his team in a scoring position so that they can go to the Super Bowl. I had a good week. <laughs> Right, right, right? The inevitable, some are like, what are you talking about now, right? The inevitable result of having a player like Patrick Mahomes even on one leg means that you always have a chance to win. And James is saying, the inevitable result of having faith means that you have works that can prove the genuineness of that faith. Our faith is an authentic type of faith. It's the real deal type of faith, that type of faith that produces works. And so James concludes this, verse 23 and 24, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, and Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him, credited to him as righteousness. And not only that, he was called a friend of God. So think about the Abraham narrative briefly. The Abraham narrative begins in Genesis chapter 12 where he receives a promise from God. And it continues on in chapter 15 where Abraham still believes God's promise despite his circumstances. And that belief and the promise and the ability of God culminates in his willingness to offer Isaac on the altar in Genesis 22. Many, many, many years later, all along the way, he's proving his faith by continuing to believe God's promise. Abraham's faith was completed or proven by what he was willing to do. James is in the center of the ring fighting against antinomianism. Now what about his tag team partner, Paul? 
Who is Paul going toe-to-toe with so that he says what he says in Romans chapter 3? And we're not going to take a lot of time on this because we're talking about James, but here. What's the setting? Who are the hearers? What circumstances do Paul's readers find themselves in? Well, unlike James's audience, which were Jewish Christians, Paul's audience is a Gentile audience. All right? And these Gentiles were being told by a group of Jewish Christians that in order to be truly right with God, they must conform to the Mosaic law, specifically in regards to the practice of circumcision. This group, known as the Judaizers, promoted law-keeping to the point that they said it was necessary for salvation. So here we get this toxic mixture of grace and law-keeping for salvation, and Paul wants to pull his hair out. He's not even dealing with an imaginary friend. He's dealing with like real people that were praising and, and preaching this stuff. And so Paul says the Romans in verse chapter, 20, or chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then later on in that chapter he says this, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Paul writes what he writes because he's trying to fight against a mentality that says you must keep certain laws in order to be saved. It's a different audience. So you have to approach it in a different angle. James is writing what he writes because he's trying to fight against a mentality that said you can live however you want because there's no law that can judge or condemn you because you've been freed from such law. Both are false gospels. Both messages, both faiths are dangerous and antithetical to the real gospel message. And so Paul and James were preaching to different audiences. James and Paul are not like boxers in the middle of a ring going toe-to-toe with each other. They're like tag team partners in the middle of the ring standing back-to-back and heel-to-heel and fighting against false beliefs that are about true Christianity, biblical Christianity in the first century. So there's no contradiction with these verses once you finally press down into them. Does it make sense? I know, I know it's a hard, heady theological discussion, but let's wrap it up here in a moment, and then we'll sing in one final word of benediction. Let's go back to James. James gives one further example that I love that he goes to. If you say, okay, great, I know this theological stuff now, and I can trace the argument. It doesn't make any sense to me still, whatever. At least hear this part, because this is where you and I enter into the story, Certainly. James is going to give one further example from the life of Rahab that basically teaches the same thing that we learned from the life of Abraham. Her actions demonstrated her faith. Okay, we got that. We won't take time to reteach all that we've already taught. We're going to assume that we've learned the lesson from the life of Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But this is what I want to point out to you. The only thing that should be noted is that Abraham was a patriarch and Rahab was a prostitute. So you know what that tells me? It tells us that saving, justifying faith can be exercised by anyone. No matter what you have done. No matter who you've been. Saving, justifying faith can be exercised by anyone. When you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ that has come to you, you can exercise faith in its life-giving, righteous, accrediting message. And for that, all of God's people ought to say, Amen. 
Rich Mullins is one of my favorite singer-songwriters, and he has a, a great song about this, and he says this, faith without works is like a song that you can't sing. He says, it's about as useless as a screen door on a submarine. Not very helpful, right? Right? You don't want that, right? They have to synergistically work together. I'm going to invite the worship team up here, but let's pray as we ask God to do that work in and through us as we live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for us. Let's stand as we sing, yet not I, but through Christ in me, and I'll pray as the worship team comes forward. God, I pray that as we enter into this last teaching segment with this song uh, that are a number of verses long that just instruct us about how true biblical Christianity works, it's by faith in the grace that's been offered to us in the sacrifice of the Son on our behalf. And now he lives in us, and he works in us to do his good pleasure. And so, God, I pray that as we sing this song to one another and to you and remind our own hearts of these wonderful biblical truths that you would be pleased with what you see taking place. And as we gather for one final quick benediction, I pray that we would see one last thing from the text today that would bring honor to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.